I have never thought of myself as a particularly good rower. My coach, Bill Titus of Pocock, says she's tough and she has a big engine. And I've internalized that image of myself. Hello, and welcome to Steady State Podcast, your rowing fix, where the water's flat, the catches are clean, and you can always hear the coxswain. We're revealing a narrative about rowing culture that celebrates the expansive array of rowers, coaches, and coxswains in a podcast designed to savor real life experience from launch to coxie at every level. We're really interested in what makes people the rowers, coaches, and coxswains they are today on and off the water. When Susan Kinney's foot cracked the bottom of a wooden hull, she never could have guessed that nearly 25 years later, she'd be a master craftsman handling boat repairs of all shapes and sizes at Lake Washington Rowing Club. Just north of 70 years old, Susan does everything from setting pitch to building Frankenstein triples and is a deep well of information about Pocock racing shells. She's also a powerhouse in a skull who has claimed multiple wins at the head of the Charles. We wanted to know more about Susan, so we took a trip to the Sow's Ears workshop at LWRC to see what she was working on and sit down with her to talk rowing. Thanks to our patrons and Concept2 for helping make this episode possible. We're Rachel Friedman and Tara Morgan, and this is Steady State Podcast. Sit ready. Okay, hi. Hi there. Hi, Susan. <laughs> um, thanks for being here. I'm Susan Kinney. I'm a member of the Lake Washington Rowing Club, and I am basically the boatman for this rowing club. We have about 80 boats that I maintain with the help of some other volunteers, but I'm a volunteer. We've named ourselves Sousy Ear Boat Works because we have been in the business frequently of turning sow's ears into silk purses. In fact, one of the boats that we first reconstructed after a major accident is now named the Silk Purse uh -huh. in honor of this. On a scale of zero to 10, how is your rowing week going? Oh, I would say about a four. No, let's make it a five. Okay, how, ca how can we get it to a 10? <laughs> uh, I've, been, I've been busy this week because my other volunteer gig has had me in court on Zoom from nine in the morning till four o'clock in the afternoon every day. Wow. Which means uh, rowing in the morning I can do, but it takes then a quick exit and a lot of attention while on the water to how much time do I have. Sure, so you're distracted. So I'm distracted. But So what are you training for right now, anything? Uh, dimly for a 70 plus women's four at the head of the Charles. Shoot. Dimly. Dimly. Dimly like in that. the sense that uh, a couple of us in the boat don't want to race except that race, or perhaps a couple of lead in head races, mm -hmm. because we're kind of, we're, we're really done with sprint racing. Oh yeah. And so, and I have some other commitments that have made it harder to do the kind of training that you have to do at my age for, for Boston, which is you have to start in March Mm -hmm. and keep working because one tapers up very slowly at this age. Mm -hmm. So, but that's my plan. Okay, all right. So there's four people committed and a coxswain-ish? Don't know about the coxswain yet, but four people committed, two possible boathouses out of which to row that could give us boats. Oh, oh, when you're in Boston, so you yep. don't have to trailer. Correct. Gotcha. Oh, so yeah. there's something we do at the beginning of our podcast where we help 
you relate to our listeners or our listeners relate to you. It's called Rapid Fire. Rapid Fire. So Q&A. Q&A. All right. You ready? Mm-hmm. I guess. Okay. okay. Sweep or skull? Skull. Port or starboard? Starboard. Bow seat, stroke seat, or engine room? Engine room. Sprint race or head race? Head race. Uni or tank and trow? Uni. Shoes or barefoot on the erg? I don't erg. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. Yeah, I had a feeling. <laughs> okay, we won't ask you the next one. Favorite coxswain command to receive? Something positive and really strong. Great work. We're ahead. <laughs> You've got three seats on them. Good. Any, any of those will do fine. Okay. The best place to row. Quartermaster Harbor. Really? Oh, hometown Vashon. Woohoo. <laughs> okay. Uh, this might be succinct. It might not be succinct. And I'm, I'm curious you have your answer. Describe the perfect stroke. For somebody who's been rowing long enough, they know it when they feel it. It just feels good. Mm-hmm. My coach, who'd been rowing for 60 years, would come in after a row in a single and say, I got three good strokes today. He was actually famous. So Frank Cunningham, had there was a famous story that he started when he was young, like 11 or 12, rowing yeah. a single. And it was in the Herald Tribune newspaper. Mm-hmm. I always tell my Learn to Row mm-hmm. students this story. And uh, he was probably in his 70s by that point. Mm-hmm. He'd been rowing for a long time. And he said he'd gotten one perfect stroke <laughs> in like 1976. <laughs> <laughs> yep. We're all seeking it, really. And mm-hmm. you feel it and you say, oh, that was it. Yeah. Yeah. One S- last question. Yeah. Very important. Coffee before or after a row? After. Good answer. Some bad experiences with coffee before. Oh, I can (laughs) imagine there are a few things that could go wrong. I think that happens. People get really uh, messed up during regattas because they're drinking and eating things in off schedules. Yeah, that's always a problem. I was thinking about um, open water races around here because the Sound Rowers does long races and race delay due to fog. And there's a carafe of coffee there and you know not to drink it but you're hanging out and you're cold mm-hmm. and you drink it. Mm-hmm. And about 8K into the race, your stomach, <laughs> fortunately not your intestines, but your stomach tells you that was a big mistake. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's awesome. So you told us that you started rowing later in life, not, I, uh, not a collegiate rower. I'm too old to have been part of the era when there was collegiate rowing. I was before pre-Title IX and pre-Rose Crew. and so. I started rowing when I was in my mid-40s as a result of thinking it looked cool Mm -hmm. and having an opening finally. Now, I didn't think about this. Did you grow up around here? Was rowing something that you were really cognizant of and just couldn't find an inroads to it when you were younger? No, I grew up in, I grew up in Madison. Okay. But at that point, women weren't rowing and I was not attuned to men's rowing. Uh, I moved out out to the west coast to go to college and then I've been in the Seattle area for the last close to 50 years. And so I saw it happening. And I happened to be acquainted with a couple of women's masters rowers who had also started as old people 
because that, that was the option. These mm -hmm. were the mothers of Lakeside students, so it was Martha's moms. Mm -hmm. And they invited me to join, and I, I did because I thought, oh, it's a chance to learn to row. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the story is similar with Conover in this region, too, where... Oh, they were the original ones. They were the original Dick's Chicks stories. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you learned to row, you were, you said, in your mid-40s. Mid uh, that's 1990s. Out of curiosity, had there been other activity in your life leading up to that? Were you into, were you a runner, or did you decide to start rowing, and that was your inroads to an athletic life? No, I had started... Uh, my, my ac physical activity really ramped up in college when I started to row and started to, mount, to climb mountaineering. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I worked for Outward Bound for close to 20 years okay. every summer through college and graduate school, schlepping around in the mountains carrying heavy packs. Mm -hmm. And I skied in the backcountry a lot. And those were, the those were my main sources of exercise. So I was pretty fit. And I think that when I started rowing, I had just climbed Denali. So I, it, I was in the best shape of my life. Mm -hmm. So rowing was another way to do it. And rowing had the immense advantage of being much more uh, convenient than going to the mountains. Mm -hmm. yeah. And the social aspect, I think, would be a little yeah. different than mountaineering and yeah. mountain the, climbing. The, so, and I came to enjoy the social aspect considerably, rowing with other people. It took me a long time before I really liked rowing a single. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what do you remember about that first, let's say that first season on the water? What really got you hooked? I think it was partly the camaraderie. It was partly the sense of how challenging rowing was. Uh, one of the, I went through a learn to row class with the moms and then we were, we joined, and we were rowing in eights. It was sweep rowing, and I got into an eight. And Rachel Lemieux was, I think Rachel was the coach at that point, but she says, okay, we're gonna do this piece, and we row hard, and take your pulses. Everybody took their pulses, and my pulse was at about, you know, 50, and I think. And their pulses were really high. Very high. And I thought, yeah. huh, well, I'm really fit. And then later I realized it was because I wasn't pulling at all. <laughs> you were working very hard. <laughs> exactly. And then later when I learned to pull, my pulse went up to 120 yeah. or 180, right, you right, know, right. And, and I realized, oh, that's that. And I thought, okay, this is more like what past exercise has felt like. Mm -hmm. I think that's always an interesting light bulb when you see newer rowers figure it out, like figure out what a catch should really feel like mm -hmm. and actually use all of their muscles yeah oh this is what they meant this mm -hmm. is it yeah 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 when learn to rowers say i don't i'm not feeling it you my know. legs aren't tired i don't mm -hmm. know which one i don't know what like, you waltz it yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> here's where i'm looking for for you do some wall sets so you um started so you went from team boats into the single yeah talk it, about I, that transition well i started with a women's, a women's sweep program. Mm -hmm. And then I read about Frank Cunningham and Lake Washington Rowing Club in a Sunday Magazine article in the Seattle Times in about 1994 or five. And it was casting Frank as the curmudgeon mm -hmm. and the women's sweep program at Lake Washington as being a kind of, they rowed in old wood boats, they still could win. But I read about Frank and I thought, I wanna be coached by that person. Mm -hmm and I want to learn to skull. And so I came here and gradually made the transition more and more to sculling. 
And we've been a very heavy, traditionally Lake Washington has been a very heavy sculling, uh, a sculling heavy program. Not a whole lot of sweep rowing. I happened to join at a time when ma the Masters Women's Sweep Program was the best organized group mm -hmm. in the boathouse, which wasn't saying a great deal. And so I rode sweep, but I got the chance to learn to scull and was very pleased to do that. And now I hardly row sweep at all. Mm -hmm. Now sweep in this boathouse, when I think of sweep mm -hmm. in this boathouse at Lake Washington, I think of Martha's Moms. Yeah. Because Martha's Moms and Conabear all are sort of the same age range and the right. same age group and they're always battling in the eights. Yep. And as they get older and older and older, the yep. clubs get older. The set, I think there's going to be like a 70s eight at some point. Mm -hmm. Oh, there is already. And so, so yeah, we don't have a big sweep program. There are, we have uh, periodic bursts of skull, of, of sweep rowing here, mostly targeted at opening day mm -hmm, at right. Boston. Or San Diego. Or San Diego. But not, but it's hard to maintain an ongoing sweep program here. Yeah. So when, um, so what was that year that you started working with Frank at the single? Well, probably about. <laughs> I guess how many years before you won the Charles? Did you learn? Oh, yeah, getting getting That's kind of what we're yes, getting at. Right. I'm trying to remember because we, won. Start, we started. We rode. I rode a. A four in Boston, in, and we won. I rode a Ford in Boston too soon after learning to row sweep, oh. and we struggled Ouch. for two or three years. And then I recruited some better rowers, and we won the women women's masters four in '98. And the next years, I was sculling, and sculling in Boston, but I didn't start rowing a single. A, a friend from Corvallis and I rode a double at the Charles women's double and were really successful, partly because we were just old enough that we were out in front of the Title IX era surge. Mm. And so we're demographically privileged. And I started rowing a single in Boston, I think in 2009. And just, we were done with rowing the, the double. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, I'm going to row by myself. Mm -hmm. Well, it says here that you won I that did. year. <laughs> I cleaned house. Yeah. I won by a minute and 20 seconds. Shoot. Because the competition, it's a very small pool. And the competition of people, that was, I was 61 at that point. The competition of over, over 60 women who were rowing singles was, was small. At a competitive level. There was probably a lot of them rowing. Oh, yeah. But at, a, at right. that level, that's what we've seen is that oh, yeah. the, you know, there's the Lisa Stones and the um, Jan, who's here in, in Seattle, yep. and those guys, they all learn to row in their 40s, so they have... A lot of time on the water. Right, yeah. they, but then you have these kids coming in at 18, 19 years old, who row for Wisconsin in college, and now they're in their 50s. So that 50, yeah, those it's a very different category, and they know how to train mm -hmm. in the way that we of that older generation hadn't had the experience of doing, because we hadn't been in a collegiate program. Right. And so the, the level of performance of the people who are a little younger than I is much higher proportionally than it was for me at the time. Mm -hmm. But at the time, I was a very large frog in a very small pond. Right, right. So, so it's a small pool, but a lot of things had to go right with your row. So from that 2009 mm -hmm. experience, do you remember heading down a course and saying, man, this feels good? Or is there something that sticks with you from that race? It was dreadful weather. It was almost snowing. It was raining hard. I didn't wear enough clothing because there is the perpetual, 
you got to get dressed. I was, I had, my boat was at the, the finish, so I had to row all the way down the river and then sit, as you do mm -hmm. in Boston. Mm -hmm. And so it's, how many clothes do you want to wear? You don't want to be hot. You want to have to be able to take things off because your number has to show when you get there. And do I really want to strip down uh, at, the, at the start line? Mm -hmm. And I called it wrong. Mm -hmm. I thought I was, I could barely feel my hands there about, you know, power alley. Yeah. But it got really fun at right before the week's bridge. Because mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I was passing lots of people. Uh -huh. I started number 17 and I ended up, I was the seventh boat to finish. So I passed 10 boats. Mm -hmm. And it got to be fun, even sure. though it was miserably cold. That's no small feat to pass that many boats on the Charles. Yeah, right. yeah, I've never. That's a strategy. Right I've there. never done that well in a race hmm. since then. Well, you haven't had of, to worry since then because well, you've been number one spot. Well, I, I have been, but I've also then like I was out for a couple of years and then I started again and I had to start mm -hmm. at number forty-four and yeah. so it it, um, but yeah, that was fun. Mm -hmm. That's exciting <laughs> yeah. when that starts happening. Yeah. And you're cold and I was wondering if like part of it's just like I'm gonna get back as fast as I can so I can have my cup of coffee. Exactly. Yeah. I want to put clothes on. Yeah. I want to get dry. Yeah. Yeah. I, those, those years where it's magical and sunny and flat yeah. is few and far between. Right. Yeah. But I, I had one year though that 2010, I guess it must have been the next year I went back. I started first. That my mother died unexpectedly five year, five days before the race. Mm, wow. So instead of going to Boston early, I went to Flagstaff to clean out her apartment. And it, it wasn't, it was unexpected, but not tragic by okay. any means. So I arrived in Boston. Yeah. Majorly just disoriented. And right after weeks, you know, it, and a whole lot of things happened on the way. I got down to the race course and the fin was gone from my single. Oh. Turns out, a friend of mine had bent his and borrowed mine, oh. and he failed to remember that I was going to row before he was. And about I found, you know, it all worked out. And I got down to the start just in time, and I took off. And right after the weeks, I apparently blanked out just for a moment because I came to, and I was sitting under the wrong arch of the Anderson Bridge, and I did not know where I was. Oh, wow. And I, why are the buoy, Ooh. why are the green buoys on the wrong side? Oh. They ought to be every. And luckily, somebody on the bridge, yeah. I think it was Christy Azalin, said, wrong arch. Uh -huh. And I came back and I realized, oh, and part of me thought, I can quit now. And then I looked back and the number two rower, Jill Gardner, was only just coming through the Weeks Bridge and I realized I was still way ahead. Uh -huh. So I backed up, I looked like I had eight arms. <laughs> I backed up, I backed up and I turned and I got into the right arch and I just hammered for the rest of the race. And, I ended up, I won even with my handicap, but I lost on the two buoy penalties. Oh, and yeah. It, but I thought, well, you know, and I felt just terrible about losing. Yeah. Like, well, give me a break. Just this fe complete feeling of disorientation. Wow. Has yeah. that ever happened to you before? No. Well, she, yeah, I would imagine yeah. going. No, it was just distraction. You, you were just distracted. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Huh. But, and I wasn't conscious going into the race that I was distracted. Mm -hmm. I've heard of people having those kinds of react, you know, fender benders in the parking lot after something like that when a parent dies. Mm. But I hadn't experienced it, and I certainly didn't expect it. Yeah. Well, that's so. interesting. I mean, that you somehow didn't run into that bridge span, and you yeah, had right. the wherewithal to figure out what was going on. 
continue on your way. I swear, if that person hadn't said that, I might still be sitting there. <laughs> sure. Have you tried Concept2's new Comp Blade yet? The Comp is a smaller sized blade that feels lightweight, efficient, and stable. Unlock speed with the Comp Blade, available in both Sweep and Skull. Find out more at concept2.com comp. Thanks to everyone who listened to our last episode with Rock City Rowing. RCR's members will tell you that Arkansas is sorely underrated. Located on a beautiful stretch of water in Little Rock, RCR is home to one of just two boathouses in the entire state, offering programs for masters and juniors. Rock City Rowing head coach Ted Reideberg and three masters rowers tell us about bringing rowing back to Little Rock after a long hiatus and how rowing changed their lives. If you missed it or any of our episodes, listen anytime at steadystatenetwork.com slash podcast or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And when you share and review this episode, it helps our podcast get noticed and reach more ears. In two, we're back with Susan Kinney. That's one, two. We've named ourselves Sousy Ear Boat Works because we have been in the business frequently of turning sow's ears into silk purses. In fact, one of the boats that we first reconstructed after a major accident is now named the Silk Purse uh -huh. in honor of this. What kind of boat is that? The Silk Purse is a Pocock lightweight men's racing double that was built for two of our members who, rode, who represented the U.S. in the Pan Am Games probably now many more years ago than I remember. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was coming back from the East Coast on a trailer. A bolt, or sorry, on the top of a car, okay. a bolt on the car top rack broke, yeah. and two of our doubles took wing. Oh. And both of them smashed their bows off. And so we, we bought both of them and salvaged and reconstructed them. Yeah. So that's the kind of thing we do. Yeah, I think that's very interesting. I haven't heard a whole lot of that happening at other boathouses. Most most boathouses will say, you know, this is going to the scrap heap. Do you know how that whole practice began here of saying, well, we'll see what we can do with the pieces that are left? It's a legacy of the, our sort of uh, founding coach, Frank Cunningham, who was a Harvard rower in the, in the 1940s and came here to Seattle, started coaching the Green Lake Rowing Club or Green Lake Crew for juniors and was their boatman because he had no option if he wanted boats that worked. Mm -hmm. This was also the case. He got interested in Lake Washington Rowing Club in its early days. And Frank was a master of making do. Mm -hmm. Frank repaired wood handles of rowing oars with popsicle sticks and glue. Mm -hmm. and because we had no money, yeah. the, the club had no money, yeah. uh, he just got very good at that kind of thing. And consequently, I inherited that attitude when I started volunteering under Frank mm -hmm. because we still had no money. Yeah. And so we have uh, the Pocock owners who have been po patrons of our club since its inception refer to us as the old elephant's graveyard because so many old boats end up being given to us or we reclaim them and yeah. then make use of them. Well, I think I saw outside in your boatyard a uh, garbage can literally with boughs sticking out of it. So I'm assuming those are waiting to be 
uh, turned into something. Something. Yeah, yeah. we several of those are are halves of, or bows or sterns of boats that we cut up and built into triples. Mm -hmm. So yes, those are exactly those are the parts they're waiting. Now, who goes out in triples? When oh, are those everybody. used? Yeah, we are. Uh, we have now two glass triples and. Uh, we have a wood triple that's above you that was reconditioned. It, Frank originally made a triple oh, in the 80s mm -hmm. out of a bowcox cedar pear. Okay. And he replaced the, the bowcox position with another rowing station. Okay. And that boat became quite popular. And in fact, I rowed in it when I started rowing here about oh, 25 years ago. Mm -hmm. And it gradually wore out. But I got the idea some years ago that, well, why don't we start making them out of glass? Okay. And so we we happen to have a pair of matched, awful old wood Pocock uh, fiberglass doubles, one of which broke the bow off. Mm. And so I cut them in what I hoped was the appropriate place yeah. and put the two together. Yeah. It, it was a terrible project, I realized in hindsight, because the boats were flared in a way that their, that particular design was, and it meant essentially doing what a dressmaker does, taking mm -hmm. darts and oh. making gussets. Uh -huh. And the resulting triple looked like a Coke bottle. Okay. But <laughs> With a... <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it, it was rowed a lot, mm. and it now, we've given it away, and it's now rowing up at Lake Stevens. Yeah. But then... From that, we got the idea of using uh, newer boats that were easier to join. And so now we have two triples, mm -hmm. uh, one of which is built out of a bowcoxed four that fell off a trailer and ah. was given to us. Okay. And the other one was built out of two doubles that were perfectly matched and mm -hmm. so were much easier. Do you have a project that you'd like to build that you haven't had the opportunity to build? What a good question. I haven't come up with, we also have a six. Okay. Uh, built out of an eight that broke in half. Mm -hmm. And I've always kind of hankered to do another one of those, but they're really, we don't have much demand for it mm -hmm. since our suite program is not too large. Okay. So, so far, I've been, I'm ready to build another triple though, because mm -hmm. that, those are more manageable in size and just more entertaining. Yeah, I mean, I would, they're so unique. I think a six would be interesting too because that would harken back to the original Harvard Yale race. Yeah. Although these these are coxed yeah. and those weren't. Yeah. But yes, the one of our members who had skills that worked well in boat building uh, was tired of the learned row class plaint. They, the membership in our club would get an email the night before saying, we're missing two rowers yes. for, for our, our All the time. row eight. Could you please come? Yeah. And he got tired of that and yeah. he thought, I'm going to build a six. Yeah. And it when when we did more sweep rowing, it got quite a lot of use and it got rowed in a couple of races. Oh, really? Because, you know, people were short, yeah. two people, and <laughs> the Corvallis ladies borrowed it and rowed it in head of the lake one year and they, they passed people. They were wow. really pleased. Yeah, yeah. So, huh. wow, I've seen it out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think I, I mean, you know, I mean, we've gotten to a point I think in rowing where you have your boat classes and clubs really aren't going to spend 
their money on on a unique boat oh, like no, that. Not at all. But it would be so interesting for the reasons that you said. So many times we go to practice and you just don't have the right number of people. So a six. Our triples are some of our most popular boats in terms of numbers of times they go out mm -hmm. of the boathouse mm -hmm. because they it's it, it's not so much the day the fourth and the quad doesn't show up, although that does happen. As they're learned, uh, they the the intermediate rowing groups use them a lot mm -hmm. because they're they're not quite as fast as a quad and they don't have a toe steer mm -hmm. so they don't have that confounding factor for the bow person to to row with and yeah. people just do lots of pickup okay. um, rowing in the triples yeah is there a a, a manu boat manufacturer like a pocock versus a piscoli versus something else that's better for frankensteining these boats together like i d i can't answer the question except well i'm familiar with pococks mm -hmm. Because Pococks have been our patrons for so long. Almost every boat we have, and all the big boats we have, are Pococks. Mm -hmm. we, we, ex we happily accept donations of singles, and so we have a range of those. But I, because I'm familiar with Pococks, and I worked briefly in the Pocock shop between real jobs, um, mm -hmm. I'm, I find them easier to work with because I understand their construction a little bit better. I tried to build a triple out of a Vespoli 4 that we were given, and it was a disaster. Hmm. I gave up. It was going to be the Tripoli. We were really pleased with the name, but yeah. the con it was a very heavy construction, which was appropriate for what it had been for, but taking it apart was almost impossible. Mm. Cutting into it, I could cut it, but then I couldn't make much of the interior. Mm. So for that reason, and simply because what we have to work with is Pococks. That's what I do. The advantage of, if you're going to be making Franken boats, the advantage, or the best thing is to have a boat with, that has as little change in the compound curve as possible because the boats are now hydrodynamically so uh, complex because they can do CAD designing and the mm -hmm. molds are built, you know, to, that, some boats just require so much work to make them fit together, whereas the straight-sided boats that are more or less uniform down the middle mm. make it a lot, you just pick your spot. Cut. They make your cut. Okay. Uh, the guy who did the six built a gauge of this, so a, a sort of curve gauge that he could use to determine where on the broken eight he should make the final cuts. And that was a level of sophistication I hadn't attained to, and I was happy to, to learn about it because yeah. it, do, it does simplify things somewhat so that when you make the cut and you line the two ends up, you don't go, oh, dear. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it turns out they don't match. They don't fit. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I know that you have not been doing this your entire life. How did you get involved with boat maintenance? Oh, I have the classic origin story. I learned to row here in the mid-90s, we were still rowing in wood eights. Mm -hmm. And I was being coached, I was in the bow seat, and I tried to adjust my foot stretcher, uh -huh. and my foot hit the bottom of the eight. Yeah. I was under the University Bridge right over there in the North Waterway. Mm -hmm. And immediately water started coming in. And I was instantly three years old. It wasn't me, you know, <laughs> not me, but the water was coming in right at my position, and yeah. I had to raise my hand. And my coach, who was the guy who did the boat repair and who taught me to 
parents said, okay, we're going, we're ending practice, we have to go back. Mm -hmm. So everybody else was pissed and he said, you're going to learn how to repair this. Okay. And repairing a crack in a cedar aid seemed like a horrendous task to me, but is actually fairly simple. Okay, yeah. And so that was how I was introduced. And I found I rather, I've never been handy and I kind of liked it. Yeah. So this, so that's really interesting to hear because I think a lot of rowers would have something like that happen to them and they would tell their equipment person, their boatman, and that boatman would say, thank you so much, we'll take care of it. But for someone to say to you, well, you broke it, you're gonna fix you're, it. you fix it, I think that's such an interesting culture here. Is that something that still happens? Not to the degree yeah. that, and even then it was, a sort, it, it was, it was curated in that he wouldn't have asked me to do something very complicated. Yeah. But this was a good object lesson. Um, we would do more of that if I had more energy for it. Yeah. I've been doing boat repair here for more than 20 years, mm -hmm. and I have been uh, holding work nights once a week in which people can come in and learn how to do boat repair. And mm -hmm. there have been, there's been a trickle of avid volunteers, but nobody hang, hangs around for very long. Mm -hmm. And I've just run out of gas sure. on teaching. Yeah. My coach, who, who was teaching me, used to say, it's much easier to do it myself than to show you. And I had a long battle of following him around and nagging him to let me learn mm -hmm. before he gradually realized I wasn't just another ham-handed rower, to use his phrase. Mm -hmm. And now I really appreciate how he felt because I, would w I want to foster that culture here. Mm -hmm. But over the years, the nature of our membership is changing and the interests of people are changing mm -hmm. so I encourage people to offer to help but I often don't take them up on it mm. because it really is it's a lot of time it's a lot of time a lot of effort and the logistics of getting someone in to help are kind of hard mm -hmm. we were wondering if there is a uh, uh, something that you see most often in terms of breakage or repairs and the second part of that is is there something you see very often that is annoying because you know that it could be avoided <laughs> we have a wide range of things that go wrong hitting docks is what you know launching uh, not launching coming back mm -hmm. into a dock produces a whole lot of scraping yeah. bumping generally pretty minor mm -hmm. and so it is more an irritation than a major concern I think the things that, that happen that are most irritating is when people step into a boat mm -hmm. and step in the wrong place. Mm -hmm. Because given the construct, boats differ in their construction, but if you step in the wrong spot, there's typically nothing but air under that mm -hmm. spot. Mm -hmm. and, and I have seen people go all the way through the bulkhead and into the bottom of the boat in a glass boat when they stepped in the wrong place. Mm -hmm. That is profoundly irritating. Yeah, it's not a horrendous repair to do, but it takes. It's irritating. <laughs> it's irritating because, because you know that it could be avoided. Yeah, yeah. But we get distracted when yeah. we're stepping into the boat, or we're not aware of what the structural issue is. Mm -hmm. Like where there's a little thing that says "step here." Exactly. But. Yeah. My foot is larger than that. <laughs> yeah. Where do I put my major weight? And just putting the major weight in the wrong place results in weakening the whole mm. bent, 
bench of the boat. Mm -hmm. So I would say stepping on, stepping in the wrong place in the boat is probably the most irritating. Yeah. Running your boat into a parked Oh, a parked trawler and breaking it, oh, yeah. it breaking off the bow is irritating, but yeah. that fortunately doesn't happen very mm -hmm. often. I rode a, well, I rode a Stemfley wood double smack into the side of a barge one morning oh, and God. <laughs> broke the bow completely off and then had to explain to the owner who had loaned it to me oh, no. uh, of what I had done. We had to be rescued because the thing sank almost immediately. We had to <laughs> bail out at a, hus uh, at a houseboat. We were rescued because the launch came along. And we put it back together, yeah. piece by piece. This is really good. I think we had one other question about boat repair. Okay. Um, and we, you touched on this a little bit because I was asking you about what sorts of repairs you might, um, you might ask a, a rower to help with. And I know that you said that you're not doing a lot of that mm. these days, but you know there are small things that happen at practice, as you're moving boats around, whatever it is. Are there any? smaller skills that you think rowers should have and they and and fixes that they should be able to do themselves the ideal would be that rowers in the process of learning to row become really acquainted with the mechanics of the boat which is something some instructors have time to do and ability to do and some don't mm -hmm. and so that when a rower so that we'd like a, I would like a rower to be able to to just basically are your are the bolts on your boat tight when you start? Mm -hmm. Do you know to check the or the top nuts on the oarlocks? Do you know? Uh, can you assess whether your seat is in fact seated properly in the track and facing the correct direction? Mm -hmm. uh, oh, the correct direction—that's really key. I, oh yeah. Yeah. Just as a little aside, I went out with a master's crew and eight, and all the seats were in backwards. And I don't know how none of the rowers check that before getting in the boat. So mm -hmm. that was yeah. So, so <laughs> uh, the thing is that that I think I think would be most helpful is just maintaining things rather. Than, it's nice to avoid damage. It's nice to not smack your boat on the rack. Thanks to our patrons and Concept Two for helping to make this episode possible. We all bring to rowing either a struggle, a journey, a striving, or an understanding of harmony and rhythm. And we're wondering where in your life, so because mountaineering and, and adventure and, and those kinds of things definitely play a factor when we're out in a boat and, you know, the basin in Boston, you got to figure out what you need to do. Putting in the effort. But where does rowing resonate for you in terms of those, as those aspects that Pocock talked about a lot, the mm -hmm. harmony, rhythm, symphony? I have never thought of myself as a particularly good rower. My coach, Bill Titus of Pocock, says she's tough and she has a big engine. And I've internalized that image of myself. So rhythm, and I aspire to it, but I don't have the sense of it. For me, rowing was physical activity with others, a bond with the tribe, and then it became to my surprise, competition. I didn't, as a friend of mine said, I didn't think of myself as competitive. I've had a competitive spirit until I started to win. And she was right. Uh, mm -hmm. So I kind of got into doing well, but now that I'm far less interested in racing, I find the theme for me about rowing is to be out on the water 
in the morning, and, and it has to do with being outside, and it's a meditative experience. So it's, it's rhythm in a sense without focusing on rhythm per se. It is a being present and really returning as in meditation to presence. How's the catch? How's the catch? How's the catch? Oh, how's my posture? How's my posture? In a way that is not uh, negative, but is just a continued recentering. And to be able to be outside, particularly in the mornings, gives me a great deal of what I used to get by going to the mountains. Mm. You're out. You're looking at the sky. You're looking at the water. It's I'm rowing in Lake Union and Union Bay and down to the locks where there's a lot of commercial activity and it is not like rowing on the Willamette or someplace that could be more Quartermaster. Quartermaster Harbor. But there is still that delight in being out and just being present and doing what you're doing. Great. We agree. We totally agree. She rows on Anacostia, yeah. I row on Quartermaster. Uh, yeah, for for me, it's a really different situation than out here. I just mm -hmm. run a very small little uh, river called the Anacostia River mm -hmm. that feeds into the Potomac, the Potomac. which is yeah. the, you know the big brother there in Washington D.C. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, it's an opportunity to get out of the city while still being in the city, and I love that. There's not a whole lot to see there, truthfully, mm -hmm. but. Um, I like what you said about being continually present. Just the other day I was talking to some new rowers about body awareness. Mm -hmm. And I like kind of flipping that or turning it a little bit and taking that to being continually present as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's your own body awareness, but continually present of what's happening in the boat, what's happening around you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think some people's temperaments aren't built to sustain that or built to tolerate yeah. that yeah mm -hmm. and those are the people who probably train over train and end up you know with the bloody mm -hmm. knuckles and, mm -hmm. and and things like that and end up a little bit miserable or in pain or all of the above but yeah it does become more of a contemplation as we get older though because we're the stakes are lower you know it's not that we're not trying to prove something mm -hmm. and i think uh, shirley wilson who you probably know from yeah pocock she said the exact same thing to me. She started rowing when she was in her 40s, and her kids had lots of trophies and medals and things from right. soccer and yeah. whatever they were <laughs> playing. And she went to regionals, and she won. And she was like, oh, wait, I'm not just a rower. I'm, I'm a, a racer. racer. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it really sparked her fire. It yeah. was really quite a great conversation mm -hmm. with her about that. Yeah, to realize that, that that's open to persons of her or our age. Yeah, because we do talk a lot about the pre-Title IX folks and the post-Title IX folks. And I know as a Learn to Row coach, I do a lot of moms whose kids are off at school now and they've got time for themselves and they mm -hmm. didn't do any exercise, you know, for whatever reason their whole lives. And mm -hmm. and then there's definitely the pre-Title IX, post-Title IX folks that come in and then they've seen rowing and they've been intrigued by rowing and they read Boys in the Boat, of course. Mm. A lot of people say that. Mm -hmm. but, uh, it's definitely oh, an awakening for yeah. a lot of people. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, it's a side of themselves they didn't necessarily have a space to expand into. Mm -hmm. They're like, wow. And thank you yes. so much. Thank for you so oh, much. Oh, well, it, it was a pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. But this has been great. Thank you so much. Oh, well, thank you for having me. To see photos of Susan, along with the links to the people, clubs, and events mentioned in the episode, check out the show notes on our website. The support 
of our amazing patrons has enabled us to produce 50 episodes of Steady State Podcast and change the media narrative about rowing. Join our Patreon community for as little as $5 per month, and you'll be the first to know about new podcast episodes, get Steady State freebies, and store discounts. Find out more at steadystatenetwork.com slash Patreon. Hey, Tara, I think some listeners might not know that Steady State is more than a podcast. Totally. We should definitely tell them. We've got virtual events happening every week that bring together the rowing community from across the country and actually around the world. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. I really look forward to Friday mornings when we get together for coffee chat on Instagram Live because we get to talk about rowing and racing and technique. But we also delve into things like DEI and motivation slumps. And it's always neat when rowers from around the world tune in. And so we hope you'll join us on Fridays, 8 o'clock West, 11 o'clock East on Instagram Live. Grab your favorite mug and add your voice to our conversation. And we also know that everyone sometimes needs buddies to help get them through long pieces on the erg. I know I do. So we lead Steady State Sundays the fourth Sunday, basically, of each month at 6.45 a.m. West, 9.45 a.m. East. And when you register for the 60-minute Steady State ERG workout, we give cues and insights to keep you motivated along the way so you can work at your own pace and then stick around after to chat. Yeah, I really like that at your own pace. I row at about a 16. <laughs> so um, if you want to find out more about any of our events and claim your spot in our lineup, go ahead and visit steadystatenetwork.com slash events. Steady State Podcast is brought to you by me, Tara Morgan. And me. Rachel Friedman. Between us, we have 33 years of rowing, coaching, and coxing experience and running successful rowing-related enterprises. Tara is the founder of Seize the Oar Foundation, where they champion inclusion in the sport of rowing through team training, outreach, and thought leadership. And Rachel is the founder of RowSource, the original resource for master's rowers. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Seize the Oar and RowSource. Thanks so much for listening in two, way enough. That's one, two, way enough.